Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held is brought to you by Lean Cuisine. I've got a lot of opinions, and here's one. Sesame is everything especially the sesame chicken from Lean Cuisine's Marketplace line, which is made with the kind of ingredients that I like to keep in my own kitchen. Natural chicken, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. Visit leancuisine.com backslash refinery29 for a coupon code. And feed your phenomenal with Lean Cuisine. From Refinery29, this is Strong Opinions Loosely Held. I'm Elisa Kreisinger. What defines our identity? The people who raise us or our biological relatives? And once we've answered that, how do we come to terms with the lies and mistakes that those people have made? This week's episode is dedicated to finding personal truth within our families, and it's inspired by the film Little White Lie by director Lacey Schwartz. Lacey grew up in a typical upper-middle-class Jewish household in Woodstock, New York. Show us how you can stand on your side. Show us that trick. Oh, great. She's an only child. Oh, that's terrific. Has loving parents. How do you do that? And a strong sense of her Jewish identity. Yeah, you have Peggy her sweat clothes. My new motto, late to bed, early to rise, makes a woman extremely ugly. <laughs> but there were always questions around her identity. Not only did she question it, but so did everyone else around her. And there were specific questions. Like, how could a white girl have such dark skin? I remember you had kind of a, a yellowish tinge. You did look a little different, but, uh, you know, it was just how you looked. When Lacey's parents divorced, her gut started to tell her something different. Lacey came to me and said, we have to talk. It was like, oh, no, I'm scared. And I told her I had to talk about it. I wanted to talk about why it looked the way I did. After years of lies and excuses, Lacey confronted her mother, and the truth came out. Lacey is the product of an affair between her mother and her mother's black friend, Rodney. The father she grew up with wasn't her biological father. Lacey's biological father died right before her 30th birthday, and that sent her on a quest to reconcile the hidden pieces of her life. You know, the fact is, though, the fact is, like, whatever happened with you and Daddy and that inability to talk about things, that is what I carry on. Nobody talks about everything because it was all secrets. I'm Lacey Schwartz, and I'm a writer, director, producer. So Little White Lie is a personal documentary, and it covers the story of my experience growing up in a white Jewish family, two white Jewish parents, and upstate New York and Woodstock, New York, and believing fundamentally that I was white. And then at the age of 18, finding out that my biological father was black. That I always knew I looked different, but I didn't understand why, and there was a variety of different explanations that were given for that. And so the film is really about both explaining how did that happen, and then my process of 
uncovering those family secrets. And as I said, I found out when I was 18, but really didn't talk to anybody in my family except for my mother about the truth of my paternity and race until I was around 30. When I was in my mid-20s and living in what I considered to be a racial closet, because at that point in my life, I kind of knew the truth about my paternity and my race, but wasn't talking to anybody in my family about it. I was like living in New York City at the time, identifying as the person I am, kind of identifying as biracial black, and then going home and in a sense whitewashing my existence and not talking about it and not acknowledging it. And so I really started thinking about this idea of dual identity and family secrets on a larger level. I grew up and fundamentally I, like, I was who my parents were. They defined who I was. And I think that that's very common. Like that's a very common kind of coming of age experience. And then I went out on my own. I became who I was almost in opposition to who my parents were. So in a sense, I had these two selves, like this, this self that was defined by my family and this self that was almost defined in opposition to my family. And then I feel like for me, what this film is also very much about and is very common is the coming of age experience is when you go through a third phase where you're trying to reconcile those two pieces of who you are right. and try to come to terms with it. And I think that making this film and when I kind of got to be around 30, that was what I really went through. It was thinking what happened in a certain way, this defines me, but how does it not define me forever? How do I fundamentally look at these people and say, I love them. I know they love me, but I need to come to terms with it. I can't live in secrets and I need to move past it. And so I think that making film was very much about that for me. It was trying to, in a sense, understand what had happened, how it happened, and then also about acceptance and moving forward. Somebody phrased it to me the other day when we were talking about some change somebody I know had gone through. And I was like, why did you decide to do it? And he said, you know, because for a long time, there was a set of questions that were defining my existence and who I was. And I kind of felt like I was ready to move on to another set of questions. And I totally related to that because I think at that time in my life, there were a certain set of questions that I was constantly asking myself and thinking about in the world. And I needed to work through those. What were the questions you were asking yourself? I mean, it was fundamentally one question, which was just, why do I look the way I do? I always looked at you like you looked black. To me, you're just like a Jewish kid who, I don't know. It really is the power of denial. How the hell did anybody sort of not acknowledge this? It just seems like the 600-pound gorilla in the room to kind of just refuse to see it. So when I was younger, my parents, the explanation was because I had a dark-skinned Sicilian relative who everybody uses, like this example, who was no longer alive, but everybody uses an example of like, look, this is who Lacey looks like, kind of like a recessive genes kind of story. That was the main example. I mean, then there were other things, like my parents are both kind of dark-haired and they would get tan in the summer just like I would get tan in the summer. It was a lot of like almost like a feature by feature comparison that I would do. Like my mom's hair is curly, my hair is curly, you know, looking at features, that kind of thing. But there was something, you know, and listen, I have spent a lot of time obviously talking about this film and, and showing this film to people and people can still analyze it. But there was always just something that wasn't adding up about you know, if you're if my mother and I are next to each other, I think in a lot of ways we assimilate each other because we, I guess people can say we're there's a lot of similarities sometimes in our personality or in our affect, but but I don't think you'd necessarily pick us out of a line as being like mother and daughter. And so for my mother and I, I think it was a really actually a very healing process for a long time. And my mother has spoken about this publicly and to me that that for a long time she had a really hard time getting past the lies, almost in a sense stop lying. And she looks at 
you know, when I decided to do this film and really uncover these secrets, in a sense, it was a gift to her because I helped her move past that and helped her kind of move from a place of guilt to accountability. So she did feel guilty for all the lies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, more more so on some days than others. But yeah, I think that that's pretty fair to say. You know, one of the things about my mother is she wasn't just guilty to me. Like she was guilty to my dad. She was guilty to a lot of people, you know, that it was very complex. And I wasn't always, you know, top of her mind for a long time. I think she was, even though obviously there was violations. There was a period of time where she was really trying to protect my dad, Mm -hmm. you know, and thought that even after they had gotten divorced, that the truth coming out about my paternity would hurt him. Did it? You know, I am generally speaking a believer in the fact that like the truth will set you free. That that a lot of times when you think about something in your head, it is kind of out of proportion with reality. So I think that in the end, going through the process of finally having the conversations has kind of set our relationship free and allowed it to, to be what it is without all the anxiety and it being very loaded as it was in the past. What is explored so artfully and beautifully in the film is that families keep things from each other at all costs to avoid who knows what. So many things, I'm sure. What gave you the motivation to start asking questions in like a very close-knit unit? If I had to pinpoint one moment, I and I wouldn't say like it happened directly after this, but what started to unravel it for me and push me to that point of wanting to ask questions was when my parents broke up. Because previous to my parents splitting up, it was like we lived in this bubble, you know, and I was almost one of the things that I'm really fascinated by is the power of denial. And I was interested in looking at in this film, not only at everybody else's denial when they looked at me, but my own denial, my own kind of wanting to not accept the truth or not see the truth initially. And so I think that once my parents, when my parents were together, there was a lot of like, there was a lot to be lost. But once my parents broke up, there wasn't as much to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, like we had already, like my parents splitting up had really rocked my world and already kind of broke up this family unit that, as I said previously, had really defined me. Like that's who my parents were was who I was. And when my parents as a unit, as our family as a unit was no longer, there started to be a real questioning of therefore, who am I? Were you upset at your parents for breaking up the family unit? I mean, at the time, there were, sure, I mean, at the time, there were a variety of different things going on that were pretty confusing about what was happening and how people were dealing with them. And, you know, I think fundamentally, I I look at myself like I was still a kid, but I was on, like, the precipice of no longer being a child. And it was kind of a weird age for my parents to split up because I did have a little bit of independence. And so I don't know if explaining things to me was the biggest priority for them at the time. So it was pretty confusing and frustrating and just emotional. I mean, just really fundamentally, like, just left me questioning a lot of things that I had previously thought were the way the world was or the way my world was. I always questioned why I looked the way I did. But I was also because I think I I existed in a space that was quite comfortable, you know, in terms of being from a loving family, that kind of comfort, which I think is what I consider one of the biggest privileges, you know, you can experience is coming from a loving and supportive family, which I'm very grateful for. Even some of the, what you could consider the bumps in the road in terms of how I looked and the questions I got, my own insecurities, I think were um, minimalized for me because I was in such a loving situation. And when that when that situation, when my parents' marriage was rockier, when my family, my kind of um, nuclear family started feeling, I mean, literally splitting apart that was really when a lot of the 
um, questions came. And so my parents' divorce was really, really affecting for me. When it came time to apply to college, I decided I wanted to go to Georgetown. On their application, I had to check a box. The only box I had ever known was white. I didn't know what any of the others even meant for me, so I just didn't check anything. Georgetown required you to send in a picture, and based off a photograph, I was admitted to college as a black student. That moment when Georgetown said, you're black, it was a moment that, it was like they gave me permission to start entertaining the idea myself. So when I got invited to the Black Student Alliance meeting, I went. And I kept on going, all through college and on into law school. You need to escape. You just want to be around some black people. This is, you know, this is a great place for that. My name's Lacey Schwartz. I grew up in Woodstock, New York. And just like that, I was welcomed to the black community, just because of one photo. University was like race 101, a crash course for a white person in what it means to be black. White people don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about their whiteness. But for black people, blackness is everywhere. For the first time in my life, I felt like I belonged. And somehow, I just knew that black was who I was. Of course, that meant that there was something my parents weren't telling me. At one point, you said, some people live without a race while others live in a highly racialized experience. What did you mean by that? You know, from being a part of many black communities and spending a lot of time in those spaces, the idea of, like, living every day with, like, your race being front and center was something that was really, um, is almost something, something I came to learn about. For me, I lived it. I just didn't have the words for it, right? It was, for me, it wasn't, I wasn't black. I was different. You know, when you have a group of white people in the room, they're not talking about being white. When you have a group of black people in the room, frequently they're very aware of their blackness, even when they're all together. And I think that's because day in and day out, black people walk out into the world. You know, I I don't know if you saw I Am Not Your Negro, Mm -hmm. but in that documentary, which, you know, James Baldwin, it's, all about James Baldwin and his work and his words. You know, he makes that very clear. Like, we 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 live your experience too, but you don't live your our experience. And I think that he makes a really good, James Baldwin just in general does a great job of explaining that difference. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when I read Between the Worlds and Me, ta Coates' book, I also really related to the way he talked about it, this idea of, like, black people live in the struggle and, like, white people as dreamers. He believes that there's beauty in the struggle, but it's nonetheless a struggle. He's not trying. I relate to all of those things. There's a consciousness. I think it's fundamentally, it's a long way of saying that for me, that there's a consciousness around race and the lived reality of race in this country that not person for person, obviously this is an overgeneralization, but that white people tend not to have and black people do. And then there's also all sorts of other people, but we live in a kind of black and white paradigm in the United States. What was it like raising kids and growing a family with your history in family secrets, but also a very strong family unit. Kind of what I went through or just coming to terms with it was definitely more when I was getting married than when I was having kids. 
because like, well, besides the fact that I was actually still working on the film and like kind of like at the same time that I was planning my wedding, I was literally kind of in a sense going through this analysis of my parents' marriage. That was a really intense time because I was still working through these the story and, and figuring out kind of my thoughts on it in the edit. And then I was literally planning the wedding. You know, I used to not understand like, why do people fight about weddings? You know, like, screw it, just skip the skip the flowers. So I skipped the flowers. And like, we still fought like about rentals, but then I realized you're not really fighting about rentals. You know, you're that when you do get married, there's so much intense stuff that you're dealing with on both sides of how you're bringing your families together. Besides the fact that even as a couple, you're coming together, there's a whole element of how you're bringing your families together. And, and you know, listen, this film is fundamentally about me and my experience, but obviously my story is informed by my parents' story because I came, I am of them in many, many ways. And, and that's like the interesting part. Like there's a part in the film where like my, my mother talks about how my grandmother felt about my father, you know, in that idea when you're kind of are going through a marriage of like, there's so many people that factor into it. I used to think, Oh, I didn't even care about having a wedding. And I do see the value even in those fights of like, you're figuring out how to bring all these people together because throughout life you really do, you know, the, you know, my in-laws and my parents, they come together all the time. Right. And there was a real coming together. People really didn't have obviously a relationship at all. One of the things I'm really, really fascinated with is this idea of stigma and how frequently different people's realities are stigmatized. And it can be even in small ways. Like there's this idea that like, this is normal. This is how you have to be. And if you are not that, then your reality, either somebody else stigmatizes it or you assume it's stigmatized. And that's the way I look at it with my story, right? My parents kind of came from the same background. They were the same. They should be together. And then when I was born, I was of them. You know, this idea that there's any space for difference in there is frequently not really entertained. You know, around the time when I started trying to get pregnant and having my kids, I realized that in a sense, there's, it's very easy to like not share details of your existence. In particular for me, it was around fertility. And like this idea of like, was I being fully honest about the realities of my fertility experience and having my, the experience of having children and how easy it is to kind of edit the stories that you tell about your life and about your children and that in a sense like I could create like little white lies about them um, that maybe doesn't harm them just kind of makes the whole situation easier so do you see yourself having to stop to train yourself out of doing that with your kids definitely and in particular around this one incident which was about me trying to get pregnant and what the real story was and I had an incident happen where kind of doctors were like you know, you shouldn't tell anybody about this. Like literally, About not being able to get pregnant. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is, is when I think about denial and I think about truth, like I think about family secrets, there's three stages of denial for me. The first stage is when deep down you lie to yourself before you lie to other people. You convince yourself to believe what you want to believe. Did you do that? Totally. I think everyone in my life did that. The second stage is when deep down you know the truth, but you're not admitting it to yourself. Right. That's like kind of the second stage. And the third stage is you've admitted it to yourself, but you're not talking to other people about it. And I think frequently that is a space that family secrets live in for a long time where everybody actually knows the truth. They're just not talking about it. And then you carry it with you and you carry it with you and you carry it with you and you never it literally is like the weight on your back, like an anxiety you're carrying with you all the time. And so I guess people obviously the, the fear is when you talk about it, what will happen? 
Right. But I would venture to say that a lot of times, even if that's a bad conversation and people get very emotional and they get very hurt, usually not that much happens. You know, you just because you already knew it. Everybody already knew it. You know, I used to think with my relationship to my father that one of two things was going to happen when we finally kind of were able to speak about the truth. Either we were going to like work everything out together and like kind of come to the same place together or we weren't going to have a relationship. It didn't really occur to me that we could actually live very much in the middle, which is like one of us deals with it one way, one of us deals with the other way, and our relationship can still be maintained. And that's what happened. That's what happened. And that's like a huge learning experience for me. And I think that frequently these conversations, I'm not saying they're easy, but they are more difficult in our heads than they are in reality. Because once you have them, they're done. And it doesn't have that power over you anymore. What would you say to someone who's holding on to a family secret or who wants more information from their family to fill in the gaps of who they are, but who's afraid to rock the boat for fear of messing up that great relationship with a parent or a family member because it is so great and it is so supportive? I subscribe to like the airplane mask theory of life, which is that fundamentally you cannot take care of other people. You cannot be good for somebody else unless you're taking care of yourself. When you're choosing between speaking the truth and not speaking the truth to preserve a relationship, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to start to crumble in a lot of ways. And you're not going to be able to be the healthiest version of yourself. And if you're not the healthiest version of yourself, then the relationship can't be. So you have to, it's really about like fundamentally being authentic in the realist sense of the word and that you can't be any good for other people until you kind of take care of what you need to take care of. You know, a lot of people say to me, I just want to hear somebody say, I'm sorry. And it's like, well, Why? What will that do for you to hear somebody say, you're sorry? Like, what is that really what you want? Will that make everything better? Or is it something you're trying to come to terms with? Because I think it's both about, as I see in the film, it's both about me needing my parents to accept me for who I was. And also, I needed to accept them for who they were, you know, for better or worse. And accepting them for who they were allowed me to move forward with who I was and not be defined by their limitations. Right. Which fundamentally, I can't do anything about. I did a panel and a screening at the American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatrists. And a woman stood up and said, I went into psychiatry because I have been struggling with my family secrets my whole life. I am now a psychiatrist and none of it has ever helped me. And like just watching your film helped me understand how to like move forward with my parents. That's amazing for me. You know, I'm not trying to do pop psychology, but if I can help people engage in their process and work with professionals who can help them more I think that that's pretty incredible Lacey pieces together her family history and the story of her dual identity using home videos archival footage and interviews from her own life which you heard throughout this episode you can stream the full film on iTunes or Amazon and go to littlewhitelithefilm.com for more information have you struggled with your identity in your family what happened when you came clean about your own family secrets Are you still holding on to them? I can't wait to hear your stories, so tweet me at popcultpirate or tag me in your posts on Instagram using at popculturepirate, and I can't wait to hear from you. We'll be back next week with another episode, but in the meantime, check out our video channel based on this podcast at facebook.com slash strongopinionsloosely-held. And please subscribe to Strong Opinions wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Sarah Bernard and edited by me, Elisa Kreisinger, with help from Jesse Ridner and Daniel Huerta for Refinery29. Special thanks to Kat Moldina for her research help. We recorded with Paul Ruest, and we'll see you back here next Monday. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.